Start jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast aye, shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. You should be able to hear the magnetic resonance. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good morning, or afternoon, or evening, whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time as we delve into the worlds of science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. I am your co-host, Gene Turnbow. And I am your other co-host, Susan Fox. And with us is film composer, uh, David Raiklin. Welcome to the show. Wow. More than happy to be here. How are you guys? Uh, it has been uh, it's been quite a year. I I think the last time you were with us was very early on in the run of uh, the Event Horizon. We were not even out of our twentieth uh, episode yet, and we are about to hit. I think this is episode one hundred and eighty-one, if I'm not mistaken. So we've we've yeah, done, but we've piled around at conventions and, and yeah. had some some uh, quality time. And you're just a man of many interests, from music to to biology. Uh, yes, I work as a film producer, and I'm also a science consultant for scripts and television shows. So uh, I have had a lifelong fascination with the process of science and the process of making all different kinds of art. So I'm thrilled to go to... The JPL open house as much as I am to a movie premiere. That's pretty. That's pretty fun. I mean, you are you are extremely. Uh, in addition to your um, schooling as a, a as a performer and a composer, um, you went to UCLA. You you wrote your your you wrote produced and scored your first film at the age of nine. I find that amazing. <laughs> and then studied oh, at, and cool. then went, and then taught at UCLA and 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 other places, and uh, it's that you have had an amazing life. But too bad he wasn't teaching when we were there, huh? Oh yeah, <laughs> that would have well, been fun. There's an educational component to almost everything I do, but in an infotainment kind of way, I, I like to entertain great notions, if that makes sense. Oh, there we go. That works. So, lately you've taken up an interest in uh, synthetic biology. Tell us a little bit about that. Oh, synthetic biology and uh, most exciting and most potentially frightening is synthetic human entities. I was just speaking with the uh, Department of Genetics and... Uh, bioengineering professor from Harvard uh, by the name of George Church, who was the f- person who 
developed the technology that sequenced the human genome. If you remember the Human Genome Project, mm-hmm. and what the was? Ah, uh, yes. I well, he is a prolific guy and not one to rest on his laurels. So now after having uh, not only sequenced the first human genome, but now brought the price from $1 billion down under $1,000 to sequence genomes. So now thousands of people around the world are having their genomes sequenced. It's rewriting human genomes. It's not science fiction. This is the biocentury. He is actually actively editing human genes and animal genomes to create new creatures that have not existed before, or if you prefer, uh, genetically enhanced versions of uh, creatures in humans. For example, uh, he's the, the guy who is resurrecting the mammoth. Not a audio-animatronic or, or, or CG mammoth, but he's actually taking mammoth DNA and creating an entire woolly mammoth genome to create a herd of mammoths, which, of course, have been extinct for uh, 10,000 years, but uh, he claims that he can bring them back. They must be delicious because we hunted them into extinction once. Yes, exactly, and uh, maybe we'll do better this time. And uh, of course, I, I, you know, trust me to go straight to the food aspect, huh? I had, yes, I had, well, I'm sure mammoth burgers would be tasty. <laughs> I had read uh, a little bit about um, efforts to bring back the woolly mammoth, and what I had read to date implies that what is what they had been working on, and I, I have to confess, I don't remember who it was that was doing this. But they were trying to combine uh, woolly mammoth DNA with standard African elephant DNA, and they found that they were actually a close enough match that you could actually get a hybrid from that. Well, I think they've got enough mammoth meat around to get a full... Oh, I I think so, too. But it's it's the question of of getting a viable viable creature, creature out of that. Let's try saving the yes. the actual African elephants. I mean, those are very endangered. Well, yeah, but yes, that's, that's sort of... It of all kinds of questions. Um, uh, for example, one of their problems, the African elephant, I, I should think about that for just a second, close match, but an even closer match is the Asian elephant. Boy, he's Asian elephants lot. actually live and play in the snow. So they're even closer. And you know how uh, human genomes from one person to another are 99% plus identical. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, even to chimpanzees, that humans and chimpanzees are more than 98% identical. So when you're talking about the difference between an Asian elephant and a woolly mammoth, it's down to few enough genes, maybe in the order of a, a couple of hundred, that it might be faster to just edit a uh, Asian elephant genome and put in all of the uh, uh, alternate alleles that are from the mammoth than to synthesize a whole mammoth genome, although uh, if necessary, he'll do that. But he's been funded by a billionaire, this is for real, to synthesize a woolly mammoth. And, wow. Uh, 
So he's seriously doing this. This is not sci-fi. This is not something that they could do. This is actually something that his lab at Harvard is working on. They're taking the Asian elephant DNA and editing it, adding back uh, or replacing the Asian elephant DNA with the ancient woolly mammoth DNA at the locations where they're different. This is astonishing technology. The ramifications of this are profound. This is what they were talking about doing in uh, in Blade Runner, you know, in nineteen what was it eighty seven? <laughs> yes, uh, in nineteen eighty two. Nineteen eighty two. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, that was um, uh, okay. The whole thing. So you get people that specialize in doing the uh, DNA editing for a particular area of the body. You know, like the fellow who created um, created the eyes of the uh, mm-hmm. uh, of Rutger Hauer's character. You know so that was. Uh, uh, I don't. I don't know anything. I just do eyes. Only eyes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. But even that can have profound implications because suppose that you're someone who's uh, ambitious, or your parents have ambitions for the kids. And they know from studies, surveys that have already been done that people with blue eyes are more likely to get promoted and have higher salaries than people with brown eyes. So maybe your parents, not out of uh, of vanity, but out of ambition, want their child to have blue eyes because it gives them a competitive advantage. And then what happens if everybody has blue eyes? Then aren't we like into that Twilight Zone thing where, you know, everybody has to be identical? (laughs) Yeah, well, um, there was a Kurt Vonnegut story um, where uh, he explored that idea, except that in order to make everybody equal, um, well, I they mean, had to the give prim- handicaps. Yeah, they had. Yeah, they yeah. had to. They would <laughs> handicap you until you were if you if you weren't equal. So uh, that so a great runner would be you know stuck with leg irons and. <laughs> Smart people would have headphones with yammering in their ears at all hours, so they weren't too smart anymore. Yeah, I I remember that one. Well, you know, the blue eyes are pretty, that's a pretty benign, uh, you know, adjustment, but, um, you know, the, uh, yeah, choosing for for gender hasn't worked out all that well in, in China, has it? Because now they're young men who can't get, can't get married, because there aren't, aren't enough girls. Yes, that's actually uh, where the um, end game or or even just the middle game of creating synthetic human entities goes because uh, we don't have the wisdom to see all of the ramifications of something like uh, changing a major trait, like a person's sex on a mass scale. Uh, all kinds of questions come up. Uh, like, for example, um, should scientists edit out Down syndrome or HIV or sickle cell trait or any uh, of the other conditions that we know are terrible and are heritable? You know, that... that uh, well, HIV is not a – that's a virus, but uh, yeah, the others, yeah. But viruses can be in, inherited. Uh, in other words, kids can – you know, babies sometimes are born with HIV because the mom had HIV. So 
But that's not there's, that's not her genes that are the problem. Yeah, that's actually viruses passing through um, passing through the shared biology. Yeah, the A is for entities. acquired <laughs> acquired immune deficiency. Right, right but uh, the person who has HIV could be cured of it by removing the DNA of the virus from their body, not with a uh, quote uh, vaccine or um, antibiotic or any other conventional kind of treatment, but by actually using a genetic engineering. Oh, on the virus. Okay. Virus. Ooh, that's interesting. Which, which brings into question or brings to, at least brings to the table the possibility that a living organism could have his or her own genome edited. Uh, oh, to produce different, to produce new traits. Oh, once you've in a, been in a single you've gener- been, You mean after you've been born? Yeah, once you've been born. I see. Uh, you know, to to change properties of your body after you've been born and, and give you new potential or cure genetic disease in an existing organism and express those new traits in a single organism uh, without having to go through a generation to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Something that comes to mind is there's. Um, so-called orphan diseases where it's too difficult to uh, do uh, studies for drugs to treat them because it's so expensive to do the trials, but there aren't enough patients. But we know why people get muscular dystrophy, for example, because researchers have identified what the problem gene is. And we know what the good gene is like because most of the population has a normal copy of that gene. So why not just take a normal copy of the gene, which we know is safe because it's been tested on billions of humans. It's a, it's a safe gene. And just cut out the defective gene and replace it with a new one. And you don't need to do any special research because we already know what the bad gene is and what the good gene is that, you know, will, could replace it. Well, the I think the I think the research comes where uh, where you have to develop the technique to safely edit the gene in a living being in 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 situ, so to speak, uh, without actually destroying the DNA of the recipient. <laughs> and that, well, I think that would be an important thing to test. Uh, I, and I, I confess I don't know how it works. So, Well, uh, the primary technique that has really taken the field by storm and is really causing an exponential change in the kind of um, projects that uh, can be seriously undertaken is called CRISPR. And this starts with a enzyme that's found in uh, bacteria that bacteria use to defend themselves against viruses. There's uh, viruses that attack bacteria, and it turns out that uh, bacteria have evolved a very effective defense against this. Uh, what the, the virus does is it creates a protein that binds to the DNA of the virus and cuts out a piece of it. And there can be many copies. So if the the virus tries and attack the uh, bacteria with multiple copies, the bacteria just sends out multiple copies uh, of the enzyme and it disables the virus. It prevents it from reproducing. That's fascinating. I didn't know that. Yes, and 
people didn't know that. I mean, no one ever imagined that such a thing could exist. It was just, you know, not on anybody's radar. But researchers discovered that. And then uh, George Church and his colleagues uh, came up with the idea that, well, we could actually try this in humans. And they uh, engineered this bacterial enzyme called CRISPR to uh, work in other creatures, you know, in, in, uh, in plants and animals. And that's what they've been doing. Uh, one of the most mind-boggling things is uh, they are growing human organs in pigs for transplant. Because you know that uh, the biggest uh, hurdle in doing uh, transplant surgery is finding a suitable donor. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. I know people on donor lists are just going to keep waiting. Right. Well, uh, with this technology, you don't have to wait because there'll be a library of human or- organisms that are matched to yours and everybody else's uh, uh, genotype that are uh, appended onto the, the pig genome. And these are incredibly healthy pigs because they wanted to make sure that the organs were grown in an organism that wouldn't uh, pass on any illnesses to humans. So they've like perfected uh, a, uh, a species of pig that they've uh, made, I'm trying to remember, it was something like 45 or 75 edits to the genome where they uh, – basically cured the pigs of, of all known major diseases so the uh, organs that are grown in the pigs can be safely transplanted into the humans and not bring any disease with them because the pigs can't get those diseases. Which, I mean, the kind obvious... the question. They ought to send those genes out to the food industry and have all the, all the pigs not get sick. Well... <laughs> And, and of course, it also begs the question of whether or not we could do that with people. I mean, wow. If they can do that with pigs, they can obviously do that with other organisms, including us. Right. And then that brings up the question of uh, should we do that? And, of course, the answer to that is it probably doesn't matter whether we should or shouldn't because someone is going to do it anyway. Oh yes, the the question, the debate of, of whether we should or should not will be interrupted by somebody doing it, regardless of what it is. Right, exactly. So somebody is going to have their genome edited, and probably more than one someone. So that brings up the question: uh, Will this be done in secret? In other words, uh, suppose uh, another billionaire has approached. Uh, church's lab and said uh, forget the, the woolly mammoth and the pigs I, I want you to genetically enhance me so this is already this is already an open que- open question that being actively pursued at this point he can't be doing that in the United States can he I don't know well, maybe you know, there, there's, you know there's there, there are laws uh, uh, about introducing something like that as a medicine uh, or as a uh, a general treatment, but I don't know if there's a law against somebody asking it to be developed for him personally. I, yeah, I, I don't know exactly. how that works. You've nailed it exactly. There's a big loophole in that law. Mm-hmm. You can't get federal funding or federal approval 
for doing this, but that doesn't have any effect on private individuals doing it. <laughs> so if money talks, and if you if you have the money, you can make yourself free from disease. The rest of us kind of have to bumble along, I guess. Including um, the potential of uh, having your genetic code corrected and rewritten periodically to correct coding errors as you get older. You could, oh, yeah. you know, you could potentially live forever if you, if you were infinitely wealthy and had access to that kind of technology. Uh, how is he making any progress on this? Is he actively pursuing this question? Uh, you mean uh, on humans? Yes. Well, uh, that's a good question. You know, he has founded uh, a number of companies, and by that I mean it's, uh, he's founded fifteen biotech companies to work on different aspects of this that are uh, not funded by the government or not funded by Harvard. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, my guess would be that the research on the human side of this is probably being done at one of his private companies. My goodness. Now, I'm not saying he's a bad guy at all. In fact, you know, he's mm-hmm. a very ethical person, but he also strongly believes that this technology is a boon to mankind. I mean, he has ideas, very interesting ideas on, uh, everything from, uh, treating global warming, to uh, eliminating uh, prejudice, you know, um, prejudice and, and discrimination, uh, all kinds of ways that DNA technology can be used to improve human civilization. And he's trying to do it in uh, more or less in the open. But it was interesting that last year he called a conference of uh, about 200 of the world's uh, leading uh, DNA engineering scientists, you know, from, from all over the world, mm-hmm. uh, to meet. And, uh, it was not publicized. And when the New York Times and, uh, Washington Post, you know, found out about this, they were saying the geneticists are having a secret meeting on yeah, uh, that, what to There's do. a big difference between secret and just not telling anybody. It's saying, not they were hiding it. I had they a, just weren't promoting it. I was about to say, I had a secret meeting with my mom today. I didn't, it wasn't in the papers, you know? <laughs> so it must have been a secret. Your conversation with the, your, your mom uh, might not have been discussing things that would affect the fate of the human race. Although but they <laughs> might have been. You don't know my mom. <laughs> yeah. She might have exceptional abilities. Mm-hmm. But anyway, uh, continue on. It's the, the the papers found out about this thing, and what happened? And you know, basically, he said that uh, we would never do anything uh, without a public consultation. And uh, I, I don't have the exact uh, quote with with me, but it, the point of it was that uh, this is a very sensitive subject. Uh, at the conference I was at yesterday, uh, he had a. Uh, pastor, uh, an African-American pastor who was uh, someone that they needed to ally themselves with because the uh, African-American community has been the the subject of uh, some pretty nasty eugenics experiments in Tuskegee and other places. Oh, you may yes. have heard about that. And it's well known in, the, in the, uh, the black community. And they look at this genetic engineering stuff as 
like uh, the the latest and perhaps the the worst kind of white supremacy, where they're just going to uh, stop everyone who isn't uh, a rich white guy from being able to have kids. <laughs> well, that's that's doomed in one generation. Then who's going to mow their lawns? <laughs> <laughs> Robots! Oh. <laughs> Better yep. get on the robot thing fast then. Big Roombas that run around outside and... But that's not the... Well, that's not... Until, until they hit a gopher and then it's a big Roomba with gopher blood in its blades running around outside terrorizing the neighbors. So this is like, like the cat poop on the Roomba, only bigger. <laughs> In any case, but you, you can't, you can't, you know, just just eliminate half the population, you know, on genetic basis. You run out of people. Well, yeah, there's, I, the, be, uh, there's the obvious uh, fallacy there, there, but but apart from that, all the, all the rich people were genetically engineered and living in orbit, and everybody else was uh, sweltering on Earth. Maybe so. Uh, everybody else sweltering on Earth, and after four generations, we adapt to conditions they can't possibly tolerate, and they're stranded out there. And then we stop sending them care packages. <laughs> you left. Bye-bye. Except robots. They can send down military-grade robots and take what they want. They can try. Until they run out of resources. It just, it's, in practical terms, it just takes a tremendous amount of technical resources to sustain a colony in a hostile environment like orbit. Uh, I don't know. I just, we're just, we're spitballing here. What, uh, uh, so. I need to get back to the, the facts. Yeah, let's get back to the, the human genetics editing story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, what, uh, the, uh, but he's obviously a very good man and is not trying to hurt anybody. He's, you know, any of this could be weaponized very easily, but, but he has no interest in doing that. Yeah, he's not interested in, uh, in weaponizing it. He's, uh, is interested in, uh, improving humans. Yeah. And, uh, that's a very touchy subject. Because exactly uh, what is an improvement? Oh, well, that's a good question, isn't it? The human lifespan is, uh, it maxes out at about 115 years. Well, it has right. so far. It's very, very unusual for a human to live beyond that. And uh, the way we're built, we just, we don't last longer than that. That seems to be the upper limit. And it would be interesting interesting to get a lube job so the joints would work longer. <laughs> yeah, you know, just arthritis, just at minimum. Uh, arthritis would be a nice thing to get rid of because that's like 90% of the problem right there. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I guess I'm not old enough yet to really feel it. Uh, I'll, get a, I'll get a twinge now and then. But, you know, you rub your joints and it goes away and, and, and you just go on with your life and that's it. Uh, and... Um, uh, at a certain point, everything starts to break, and it starts to break very fast. And then that's and that's what uh, I think being able to rewind the clock a little bit would be very helpful for. Well, it's, it's when your brain breaks that's the problem. Yeah, that's that's the real problem. 
I'll stop hitting awesome. you on the head then. <laughs> we kind of understand what's causing them, uh, and to some extent we can treat them. Mm-hmm. But really the ultimate way to uh, address the problem is prevention, and that's what uh, George was uh, was talking about, is that all, all these treatments are are fascinating, but he thinks that the, the real future of medicine and of genetic engineering is in disease prevention. So simply start out either uh, before the child is conceived, you know, at the, the level of sperm and egg, or uh, when the person is born, you edit out all of the bad DNA. So they simply don't get the diseases because they don't have um, vulnerability to it. Mm-hmm. And, and we know that some people are much more resistant to certain diseases than others. And but some like people, people are much more susceptible to them as well. There are whole genetic populations you know, in, in certain parts of the country, for example, uh, where everybody is susceptible to heart disease or heart murmurs are a common thing in that population. And this kind of thing. Well, yeah, but having a whole population that was resistant to, um, you know, the common cold would be, you know, a boon to to productivity everywhere. Yes, yes. Uh, there's uh, a massive amount of information that's uh, basically just starting to be uh, fully analyzed you know they just were able to sequence the human genome one human genome what was it maybe 20 years ago 15 years ago and you know that never uh, been available before now we have thousands of human genomes so we're just starting to get a handle on what all that that information is. You can go to Toys R Us right now, and for 45 bucks, you can buy a human genome kit and do it yourself. And <laughs> yeah, but you don't know kidding. what all the means things No, mean. you don't know what it all means, but you can see, you can do, you can do the, uh, 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 you can do the stain sheet, you know, and it's, it, you can separate it all out yourself and, and look at, uh, do your DNA and match it to other people's. You know, the, the DNA check that people do. Oh, this person obviously has these, these, uh, matching, uh, genetic traits and, and, uh, so it matches this other person. Their ancestors are from wherever. Right. And, and so you can, like the paternity, paternity tests and this kind of thing. The kit to do that is now a $45 child's toy. Yes, which is actually kind of mind-boggling because, yeah. you know, if you showed that to somebody from even 25 years ago, it would seem like this is the ultimate and uh, futuristic technology, but it's now a child's toy. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, the toys, toy business is always first with the, the high technology, isn't it? I mean, I think the wheel was invented as a child's toy, you know, and everything since then. Yeah, and now it's back as a child's toy. The, the, the fidget spinners? Oh, shoot me now. You know, we but don't it's need the fidget wheel. spinners. They've, it's, they've reinvented the no, wheel, you literally. Got, instead of a fidget spinner, give somebody a, a crochet hook. They can fidget with it, and when they're done, they have a scarf. <laughs> At least there's something to show for it. <laughs> well, now here's something you were mentioning about the brain. Uh, 
there's a uh, new initiative, not that new. It, it, it was uh, begun in 2012 uh, by... Uh, the uh, the previous administration in Washington to make the uh, decade of the brain I think it was called something like that uh, and, and the acronym is the brain initiative you know B R A I N mm-hmm. initiative uh-huh. to do uh, studies on the human brain and uh, of course uh, this, George Church this isn't it <laughs> this is not the decade of the brain. <laughs> Yeah, unfortunately, it hasn't worked out that way. But but do go on. No, go on. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, it's it's like the the, the marching morons. You know, where uh, <laughs> there are a bunch of people who are still smart, even though a bunch of them aren't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, because in that story, the the not smart people were kept breeding, and the smart people didn't. And there's a number of very smart people who were extremely concerned about this sort of thing, and are having more children. So anyway, uh, the Brain Initiative. Tell me, Your, tell me more about that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So uh, basically, what they're focusing on is analyzing brain-specific DNA, and uh, one of the things that they've discovered is that there is actually epigenetic knowledge that can be transmitted, and. Uh, there's actually a study, a very, uh, you know, reliable, uh, major U.S. university study that showed that you could train a rat to, uh, be, uh, frightened of a certain smell because I always paired that smell with a shock. And then they uh, took a male and female rat who had been trained that way and harvested egg and sperm from them, uh, created a fertilized egg embryo, uh, implanted it in uh, a surrogate uh, mother mouse, and uh, I mean rat, and uh, the rat was, was born. And that new rat, who was born to a surrogate mother rat who had never been exposed to the smell or the shock, and of course the uh, the uh, the baby rat had uh, never been exposed to that smell or shock, but it was still afraid of that smell. Well, that's so, interesting. So knowledge can be passed on in one's DNA, which means it's possible. This whole notion of racial memory actually has some scientific foundation. Yes, and that to me was one of the most mind-boggling things because, uh, you know, there was a, uh, a thoroughly discredited theory called Lamarckism where uh, acquired char- characteristics were alleged to be inherited and they weren't. But it turns out that there are other acquired characteristics that can be inherited. That's absolutely fascinating. That's, I, I did not know that that had been confirmed by experiment. That's absolutely fascinating. Yes, I, I did not know that either. But, you know, when, when you're talking about a, a team of professors from the Harvard Genetics Project, these people are not given to making exaggerations. They're extremely conservative and thorough in what they do. Well, it's not to their advantage to make uh, claims they can't back up, is it? That's uh, no, not. It'd be extremely embarrassing, and they would probably lose their job. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, 
there's so much going on right now. Uh, there are there is new technology. There's new ed, there are new advances in uh, in medicine. I was reading about how a uh, a young man who had been in a car accident and had received um, stem cell treatment on his injured spinal cord, and he was paralyzed from the neck down, but now he has mobility in his upper body, and he was lifting weights and feeding himself and this kind of thing, and he, he had been a quadriplegic. Uh, wow. You know, what's what's the worth that. of that in, in, you know, just human suffering, you know? Yeah, I mean, just so much, so so many advances uh, that we can look forward to in the next... I, I, I believe the... With... The aid of com- of modern computers, uh, the advances that we are seeing in medicine are accelerating. Uh, at uh, I'm sure I, your kid doesn't want to go to med school because you know. <laughs> well, you know, I just maybe not med school, but I have been teaching him how to do uh, how to work in the Linux operating system, and he seems to be getting a pretty fast handle on that, mm. going through a week's worth of tutorials in two days. You've given him teaching, smart pills, haven't you? And then you? teaching me stuff I didn't know. <laughs> like, oops. <laughs> well, he might work out your, your you know, jeans, jeans. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, just one other interesting thing that uh, their lab is working on. They're working on many other ones, but I just thought I'd mention this, that they have... Uh, a project called the Super Centenarian Study. Mm. And this and sounds like where, Dragon Ball Z, but <laughs> but I digress. That's fast. But this is actually a serious thing where they have used you know the vast resources of their uh, their laboratory to uh, seek out people who are over the age of 110. And sequence their DNA. There we go. How did that happen? Oh. Huh? Yeah, I don't that think any of my folks have done it yet, but I'll I'll volunteer. They they get enough in of a them. While. Yeah, <laughs> they get enough of them. They can they can start uh, teasing that information apart and seeing useful patterns. Maybe they had telomeres about a mile long. <laughs> telomeres. Telomeres. Yeah. That was the word I'm looking. Yeah. For. Yes, or very, very short ones. Well, but maybe they had longer ones to begin with. Yes, yes. That's uh, a question that will take time to answer. But the the funny thing is that because we're able to sequence genomes so quickly now, in a matter of a few days, and for low cost, it won't take that long a while for them to mix and match and see what are the genes that are, uh, you know, unique to supercentenarians. Okay. With these advances, it is entirely possible that death could be wiped out in two more generations. That's, yeah. that's, that's, what, I, that's what I think. Accidents. Yes, but, apart, apart yeah. from accidents and mishap. But that's uh, possibly true. And, you know, th- there are some wonderful science fiction stories about that. And I'm sure uh, our wonderful listeners will be able to think of them and how uh, those ideas were not just um, thought experiments, but n- now they're actually going to be real-life experiments. <laughs> so young people will be more careful because they've got more to lose, and old people will be the ones, you know, 
driving driving around in motorbikes without helmets because they can. <laughs> <laughs> what is what have you been? Uh, what have you got in the can? Uh, not in the can. What have you got in the pipeline for upcoming projects? What are you doing okay. now? Well, uh, this weekend, uh, that would be uh, the 23rd of September 2017. For those of you uh, viewing this in an alternate time frame, I'm doing a augmented reality concert in uh, Tustin, and I posted on my Facebook page, uh, David Raiklen, D-A-V-I-D-R-A-I-K-L-E-N, uh, and uh, you're welcome to come to that, where we're mixing live events, live music with video that's been recorded in a uh, 360 surround, you know, VR in- environment. So oh, okay. you choose different environments at the t- same time. The the VR, the spherical video environment that's uh, pre-recorded and the real, uh, quote, real, you know, uh, happening in the present moment concert that's happening in the concert hall. So everyone will be able to interact as they choose between the reality and the augmented reality video. Huh. That sounds like a recipe for having people bumping into each other. <laughs> I'm sorry, <laughs> I, I, if they've got I, the eye sets, you know, the eye, you know, the things over their eyes and then it's only if they're walking around. They, I suppose if, if they're you sitting in down, chairs around yeah. if you sit them down, they're not gonna hit each other. Much <laughs> And we're not talking about putting on helmets, okay? This is uh, going to be done over uh, the phone, uh, where mm-hmm. be able to see what's happening with your eyes. And yeah, people might bump into each other, but it's not too likely. Uh, when that happens is when you've uh, got like your uh, Vive on. Mm-hmm. Super cool, but you have to really give the person a lot of space because... Yeah, they they can't see what's going on, and they might inadvertently walk into a wall or into another person. But if you're uh, using your phone or some other, uh, you know, pad to view it, where you can see the rest of the world, you're probably not walking to somebody. Yeah, yeah. Well, that sounds like a lot of fun. Whoa, you just. And I'm working on a documentary on uh, the healthcare uh, crisis, but uh, a part of it that has. Um, kind of taboo to talk about, uh, like uh, medical errors and uh, physician mental health issues. Hmm. Doctors are people, too, and we need to take care of them. Yeah, that's certainly the case. I was just watching a little documentary about Skylab astronauts back when there was a Skylab. They had been in orbit for like 50 days or something like that, and NASA was pressing them to do so much work in a day that their brains were exploding. Uh, They were driving them beyond their capacity, and they went on strike for 24 hours. They turned off the comlinks. When they turned them back on, they had some very attentively listening mission control specialists (laughs) on the ground saying, what can we do to make things better? You know, because because of that very problem, uh, uh, once you get above a certain level, you are expected to perform beyond human capacity in some cases, and I think that's a very important uh, some a very important question to take into account, especially when the person who might be suffering might be responsible for somebody else's life. Well, that's that's rampant in the medical establishment and they've had to dial way back on on uh, the work they put interns through which was used to be 
even more grueling than it is now. So just imagine that. Yeah. Well, they still have people doing surgery after being awake for more than 24 hours. And we don't let airline pilots do that. So why are we letting surgeons do that? Good point. I don't want to be the guy (laughs) they're operating on. I'm able to put my brain in backwards. And we quickly uh, talk about, uh, would you like to go with uh, a discussion, a brief one, of the uh, historic nomination of a rap album for the Asthmatic Presentation, because that actually is making history right now. Yes. Oh, I was thrilled to death when I got my Hugo ballot last last summer. I was absolutely I was absolutely gobsmacked. Well you were going, Who's this? And I'm going, It's 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 he's from Hamilton. Come on. Right. I had to oh, have yeah, it explained yeah. to me. Yeah, she knew David who it was. from Hamilton. Uh-huh. I, I mean, you know, he played Thomas Jefferson and now he's playing a a, a, a rebel slave in the future. <laughs> yeah, and it's now, it's not the first time a, a concept album has been nominated for a dramatic presentation by the World oh, Science right. Fiction Society, uh, Paul Kantner's, um, oh God, what was that called? Um, damn it, I had it, I had it, we can edit, we're going to have to edit this because I've got to look this up real okay. fast, I've got it on a... <laughs> That's the beauty of being able to... Blows Against the Empire, that was it, Paul Kantner's Blows Against well, the Empire. And well, that was Jefferson Airplane, right? Well, it, it was his solo debut, as it turned out. It wasn't. It wasn't the whole band. Yes. Uh, so but this is the first time a rap artist has been nominated for it, and I I took a I took time to listen to some of the tracks, and uh, while we unfortunately can't play most, of, I wanted to play the whole thing on Krypton Radio, and then I found out. There's, uh, there's language, explicit the lang- language that yeah. is not compatible with some of our broadcasters. So, <clears throat> no, we can't yes, do sir, that. But there are some tunes that are, are, are relatively clean. Yes, well, yeah, the first are. couple of cuts are fine. and uh, yeah, Those really set the tone of a, a sci-fi industrial landscape, soundscape, mm-hmm. and a, a very... Um, but that story is all about the soundscape. That's the only way this man is staying sane is with his beats and his raps and his tunes. And that's how he's, he's, you know, further away from humanity than any person has ever been before. And that's how he, he's keeping what's left of his sanity. And is, is the ship, the ship's AI his enslaver or his lover? We don't know. And he doesn't either. Yes, yes. Uh, well, it actually kind of has, uh, a bit of that uh, black mirror uh, technology cuts both ways elements to it, and it's uh, ironic that uh, the uh, uh, Splendor and Misery album, Splendor and Misery is the name of the album that's been nominated for Best Dramatic Presentation, is actually in the same category as a black mirror episode. That's ironic, isn't wow. it? What well, one was uh, an episode of The Expanse, as it turned out, but yes, I got here. There was Game of Thrones. yeah, two two episodes of of Game of Thrones, which probably you know knocked each other out, unfortunately. But that's the way it goes, you know. And a Black yes. Mirror and The Expanse, yeah, that was it. Yeah, so a very interesting category this year, and uh, in a way, it's uh, kind of. Uh, 
raising the question, why has it been um, 46 years or whatever it's been since uh, a music project has been considered a best dramatic presentation? There, there have been other sci-fi albums, you know, uh, science fiction, space music albums produced in, in the last 50 years, why aren't any of them ever mentioned in the, in the Hugo? Well, that's a very good question. I guess it's just the, the conservative nature, and that's a small c, conservative nature of, of the um, nominating membership, really. Um, there was a whole decade of, of prog rock concept albums. We didn't see any of those nominated. But I, I was particularly it, distressed that uh, Styx's Mr. Roboto was not even looked at by the science fiction community. Well, maybe they need to uh, um, do a v- divisions of, of performance, performing arts, you know, with the same amount of granularity as, you know, a short story, a no- novelette, novella, novel, mm-hmm. and then go like mm-hmm. something that is 10 minutes or less versus two hours. You Rick, know? Rick Wakeman's Journey to the Center of the Earth. Oh, and Rick Wakeman's uh, King Arthur and the Round Table, and Rick Wakeman's This and That, you know? Yeah. Yes, and uh, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be awarded every year. You know, you could have mm-hmm. like a special award for a science fiction album uh, because, come on, science fiction music is a whole genre, and some of it has lyrics, some of it doesn't, but uh, what would Star Wars be without John Williams? It wouldn't be Star Wars. That's and, absolutely true. You studied under John Williams, did you not? Uh, yes, that's true. I, I uh, actually uh, helped uh, write a paper on his Star Wars score. Someone uh, did that as their, their doctoral thesis, and I helped with that, and that's when I first uh, met him. And uh he was, you know, very flattered and was actually trying, even back then, you know, like 1979, to say, well, you know, I've done other things besides Star Wars. Yes. Yeah, but, <laughs> uh-huh. but, you know, it's it's not even the first feature film he scored, but it sure made him a household name, at least in my household. Yes. <laughs> it, it was a, a transformative uh, event for everybody who uh, who worked on it, and I, mm-hmm. uh, I'm, I'm still thrilled when I meet people who have worked on, on Star Wars. Uh, but there's other, you know, fantastic science fiction soundtracks. So, and uh, I'm thinking of, um, oh, let's see, how about um, The Wrath of Khan by, by James Horner? Or uh, maybe the, uh, if you wanted to include superheroes, uh, which uh, I think you goes uh, often do, you could have uh, uh, given a nod to uh, Alan Silvestri's score for The Avengers. Absolutely, uh, I mean, Alan Silvestri has been has been a very busy well, monkey. Us. You know, and and uh, um, uh, uh, Michael Giacchino, I, the, what an amazing composer! I mean, he knocks that stuff out so fast. You, it, I can't believe it. He did the entire theatrical oh, theatrical God, score One, for Rogue One in like weeks. It yeah, was, it's it was, like nineteen days. <laughs> Like the whole weeks. thing. Because something didn't work out, and uh, they had to get somebody real fast, and he was real fast. And and real good. Well, the, the, the answer to your question is why why aren't these people nominated? It's because the um, each uh, convention committee has the, um, the ability to uh, name their own category for that year. 
So you might want to uh, campaign this with uh, the San Jose Committee or whoever's next after that to uh, install a institute a uh, you know a rules change for that year. That's that's they true. That. And they might listen to you. Yeah, because you're David Raiklin. Well, <laughs> I, I don't know about uh, just me, but if I float this idea and other people are interested in it, then they might listen to all of us saying that there's science fiction music out there. In fact, it's been for, for decades. And wouldn't it be uh, kind of cool to acknowledge that? Yeah, that's. I think that's a great idea. Well, once again, thank you for joining us. It has been a a great hour's conversation. We have been speaking with David Raiklin here on Krypton Radio's The Event Horizon. Thank you very much. Oh, uh, you're welcome very much. And uh, may your horizon always be infinite. <laughs> thank, thank you, you so much. Great having you with us. You have been listening to episode 181 of Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for September 23rd, 2017. Our guest today has been professional film, television, and game soundtrack composer and science consultant David Raiklin. Your hosts were Krypton Radio executive producer Susan Fox and station manager Gene Turnbow. This episode will air again at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern tomorrow afternoon. That's a Sunday and two more times on the following Thursday and Saturday mornings at 4 a.m. Pacific, 7 a.m. Eastern. Once all the year times have passed, you will find this episode and others on iTunes, Stitcher, and on our own website at kryptonradio.com as podcasts. Krypton Radio is listener-supported sci-fi geek culture radio, and the vast majority of, of our funding comes from listeners just like you. If you liked this evening's program and you enjoy listening to Krypton Radio, please visit patreon.com slash kryptonradio and contribute whatever you can. If all you can afford is a dollar a month, that's perfectly fine. It would be even more fine if everybody who listened contributed a dollar a month. It would make the radio station's future that much more secure. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The science officer was played by sci-fi illustrator Mark Schurmeister. The engineer was Christian B. McGuire. The navigator was Christine Cherry, and the captain was voiced by science fiction grandmaster Larry Niven. This program is copyright 2017 by Krypton Media Group, Incorporated. The Event Horizon on Krypton Radio. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi. <laughs>